Hi everyone, if you're joining us for the first time today, welcome. You've joined us at a very exciting time in our series as we start part three on our series on Acts of the Holy Spirit. And today we're at chapter 13, which begins a part of Acts that centers on the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul as he takes the gospel to the ends of the Roman Empire. And this part of Acts, starting at chapter 13, it possesses an abundance of spiritual nourishment and theological edification for our church today. And I think it provides at least three vital themes and lessons for the church today. First, this part of Acts reveals the need for God's people to be zealous in gospel ministry. What will inspire us is Paul and the disciples' zeal for God and their single focus and commitment to the mission of God. Second, these chapters will continue to show us the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, while zeal for God must grip every disciple, the Holy Spirit must empower us. And we learn from these chapters that all the efforts without the Holy Spirit will fail. These chapters ought to drive us to our knees in prayer to be dependent on the Spirit's direction and empowerment. And third, these chapters reveal the church must be marked by that unshakable trust in God in the face of suffering. Acts reminds us that zeal for God and the power of the Holy Spirit is played out in the reality and context of suffering. Acts shows us that suffering is the evidence of faithful discipleship to Jesus. And to the modern mind, suffering has no good purpose but to minimize it, to avoid it in our lives. But in the sovereign hands of God, suffering is no longer a dilemma but it's a driver. It drives us closer to the grace, power, and hope of God. Paul seems to face certain death at several points in his missionary journeys, but he presses on with this unspeakable joy. It drove him to see beyond his own suffering and live for the glory that is set before him. He relied on the Spirit. He clung onto God. Suffering was no longer a dilemma, but a driver to press into God. No one likes this way to growth and maturity in faith. No one likes this kind of pastoral advice to maturity. Everyone wants the easy way of perhaps reading a couple books. Actually, reading a couple books is actually hard these days. Everyone just wants a couple of podcasts. But Acts shows us that the most significant way, God's sovereign way for us to become more like Jesus to mature, to be more like the suffering servant, is to actually follow and walk in the path of the suffering servant. And this is my hope and prayer for us in this third part of Acts, that God will transform our minds to see suffering as no longer a dilemma, but a driver, to build our spiritual reflexes to turn and run hard to God in His grace, His power and hope, when suffering does come our way. And this is where God is going to take us into the next six weeks. Today we start with Paul and Barnabas. We start with their first missionary journey to the Gentile nations, which we read in chapters 13 and 14. So to help you visualize this journey through these chapters, here is a map that plots the places that Paul and Barnabas travel to in their first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas, they're sent out by the church in Antioch, Syria, circled in red. 
and they are sent to Antioch in Poseida, which is modern-day Turkey. And the way they get there is by way of Cyprus. In Antioch, Poseida, after preaching the gospel, they get driven out to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. There they get persecuted by the Jewish leaders, but they persist to double back to Antioch, Poseida, to establish elders there, to strengthen the church before they make their way back to Antioch in Syria. Now, you might find it all a bit confusing that there are two cities called Antioch. And the reason for this is that in the Roman Empire, there was actually no less than 16 cities named Antioch. And they were now all named by this Greek general, General uh, Seleucid, in honor of his father, Antiochus. It's kind of like how all the Hilton hotels in the world are all called Hilton. That's a little bit like what's going on here. And so we start at Antioch in Syria. And you notice that in chapter 13, it opens by naming five leaders in the church. Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. And just from their names, we know that this was a diverse church. There were Jews, Greeks, and Romans. There were Africans and Europeans in this church. There were powerful, influential people in the church, and there were normal, everyday people in the church. The church in Antioch was diverse. And this is what we expect when Jesus is at the center of the church. And what that means is that everything else is secondary. So it doesn't matter if you've got Herod, the Herod, the tech truck's number in your phone, or if you're an average guy from Cyrene. Jesus brings us all together in one family around one gospel. And as the church gathered to worship, pray and fast, God answered their prayer and gave them divine direction. Luke writes in verse 2, while they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The Holy Spirit spoke God's will to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the mission of proclaiming the gospel, the good news to the Gentile nations. It was at this Sunday service, you can think, or a pray and prayers night, God answered their prayers, set apart two men who would turn the Gentile world upside down with the gospel. What we see is a church that is dependent on the Holy Spirit for guidance and direction. And that is what our leaders will be doing next Sunday, because we want to start the launch of stage two as we transition our church towards uh, reopening our church building. We want to gather our leaders together to pray, to seek God's wisdom and direction on how we can continue to share the good news of Jesus with the opportunities now of meeting in each other's homes. Amidst all the complexities of our current season of COVID, we want to start with coming to God first. And personally for you, who is the first person that you turn to for help, guidance, and direction? Maybe it's a close family member. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe you've got a, a mentor informally or formally. These people are good, and they're helpful to get good advice. But would you not turn to God for guidance and direction in prayer? Is He not the sovereign Lord who rules and controls over all things? Is He not the Father who loves His children? Is He not the Eternal One whose wisdom surpasses all the ages? May the church in Antioch inspire us to seek God in prayer for all things, 
to turn to Him first. May we be a church community marked by prayer because if we don't do so, I think it will be foolish. And so the story continues that the church laid hands on Barnabas and Saul, sent them to Seleucia, to sail to Cyprus. And when they get there, they preach the gospel in synagogues. The synagogues were a good evangelistic starting point because the Jews had common ground of knowing the Old Testament scriptures. And whilst they were at the synagogues, they recruited John Mark to serve as an apprentice in their gospel work. And this apprentice, John Mark, well, he would actually go on to be the author of the gospel of Mark. See, what we see in the sovereignty of God, that every glorious end has a humble beginning. God is weaving his sovereign control over all things. And Paul and Barnabas then make their way to Paphos, the other side of the island of Cyprus. And there they find a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus. Now, the original readers would have found Bar-Jesus really odd because Jews, according to the Old Testament scriptures, well, they, Jews should have nothing to do with magic or sorcery. And so what we find in Bar-Jesus is that his spiritual and religious views and his faith is really messed up. It's all intertwined with sorcery and magic. And Paul calls him out on this. He says, You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. He was a false prophet. He was confusing truth with lies. He was propagating heresy. Judgment came upon this false prophet in the form of blindness. But through Paul's correction and showing the truth of God's word and the display of God's power, the officials around this by Jesus, they repent and they believe in Jesus Christ. This episode shows to us that the gospel witness will, can, involve refuting error, correcting wrong teachings and the lies in order to show people the truth about Jesus and his saving message. This obviously involves a level of confrontation. And this is necessary to uphold the truth of God's word. But we see it's worthwhile to do so because the truth sets people free. The truth saves people. In order to lead people to the truth, it may require us to point out falsehood so they may not get entangled with all the lies and deceits. Well, the story continues and Paul and Barnabas leave Cyprus, and they leave John Mark behind to return to Jerusalem. In the later chapters of Acts, we find out that John chooses not to continue with Paul and Barnabas. There are many speculations as to why John Mark chose not to go, and we might explore this in, uh, later in the series. But we'll press on to follow Paul and Barnabas as they make their way to Poseidon, Antioch, as Luke does with the narrative. And once Paul and Barnabas make it to Poseidon, Antioch, they enter the synagogue and listen to the reading of the scriptures. Then the official asks if Paul has any word of exhortation for the present congregation. And of course, Paul just takes this opportunity to launch into an evangelistic talk. Verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And he starts by taking the audience back to the book of Genesis, verse 17. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors, 
God sovereignly and graciously chose their forefathers. He then goes on in the next few verses to narrate Israel's captivity in Egypt, the Exodus, the wandering in the wilderness, the conquest of the land of Canaan. I mean, that's the first six books of the Bible. So in a few verses, Paul has gone Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Joshua, then he keeps on going, the book of Judges, verse 20, then the book of Samuel, verse 21, and he focuses in on King David, verse 22. And then in verse 23, he says, from this man's descendant, that is David, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's saying, hey guys, the whole Bible is about the story of Jesus. The whole Old Testament from God's choosing of Abraham and Israel to the nation of Israel, all the way to God appointing David as the king of Israel. All of that is part of the story about the Savior Jesus. And for all these Jewish people who knew about all these Old Testament stories, who knew their Bibles well, but have not yet connected the dots about Jesus, he says to them in verse 26, Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. He's saying, hey friends, there is a story that God has been writing. And that story is the reason why you are here today. And that story places a decision before us. This word, this story, this message has been sent to us. And now we must decide what to do with it. And now Paul gets really specific about Jesus. Verse 27, The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. He's saying if the Jewish leaders understood the prophets, the message that they were saying, if they understood the prophets, they would expect Jesus to come in the way that he did. The problem is that they missed the connection. And so he goes on to say, verse 28, they, they killed Jesus. Because they didn't understand the religious, uh, the prophets, they killed Jesus. Verse 29, they buried Jesus. Verse 30, but God raised Jesus from the dead. And verse 31, Jesus appeared to the apostles alive again. And so they become the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And now, verse 32, we tell you good news, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. What is the good news of Jesus? Paul explains it in verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. What is at the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, it's forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom from sin. Friends, we all come with a self-conscious, self-awareness of our weaknesses, of our moral wrongdoing. And there's two ways that we deal with it. We either despair in our guilt and shame. We see ourselves as hopeless, unlovable. Or we go the other way in our pride. We can just ignore it. Pretend it never happened. Deny it. But the problem is that we are never free from it. Only Jesus offers us forgiveness of those things. 
that we are so aware of in our weaknesses and our moral failures. Only in Jesus can we be forgiven, given a clean slate. But not only that, he promises us freedom. He gives us a new heart so that we would not be gripped by sin's power, but we will have a new affection and love for God that would free us from those things that we feel like are holding us back in life. That is the good news of Jesus that is offered to the Israelites and the Gentiles and is offered to us today by grace. So how did the people respond to the good news of Jesus? Well, at the end of chapter 13, we read that the Gentiles received the gospel with joy and responded with repentance and faith. But the Jewish leaders treated the gospel as blasphemy, as lies. They were filled with jealousy. They tried to contradict what Paul was saying. They were heaping abuse on Paul and eventually stirred up persecution to drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. And so Paul and Barnabas, they're forced to go to Echonosium. There they do the same thing. They head straight for the synagogues and they begin to preach the gospel to the Jews. Paul takes this similar strategy to start at the synagogue to leverage his Jewish heritage as a natural place for his gospel preaching to begin. And Paul faces the similar response. Memory received the gospel with gladness, with the good news of forgiveness and freedom, but at the same time, many reject the gospel with hostility. We read in verse 4 of chapter 14, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, other with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Jews, Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. So just like in Poseidon, Antioch, they received mixed responses to the gospel. Again, the Jewish leaders were angered, and this time they plot to stone Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas flee to the Lycaonian cities of Lystria and Derba, but they keep on preaching the gospel. Luke the author retells a specific miracle at Lystra, which caused an uproar in the town. A man had been born lame. Paul performs a miracle that heals this paralyzed man. Paul, seeing this man had faith, performs a miracle and he can walk. And the crowd fail to understand what Paul has done. And they begin to think that the miracle demonstrates something about Paul rather than something about God. And so the Gentiles think that Paul and Barnabas must be gods. What had happened was that the crowd misunderstood the message with the messenger. And so Paul clarifies the gospel. It says in verse 15, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from those worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He's saying, look, hey, we're just ordinary people. We're just the messengers. We don't have the power to save. It's our message about the good news of Jesus. That message has the power to save. That message from God. And Paul, knowing that the people from Lystra they're, well, they're Gentiles. They didn't know the Scriptures. And so he doesn't focus on the Scriptures like he did in the synagogues, but he focused on telling them about the natural world around them. Paul begged them to turn from the vanity of worshipping created things or false gods to worship the one true and living God. So what Paul does is he strips the pagan gods of their supposed power. 
In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains and from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Well, he's showing that the world is not a playground for Zeus or Aphrodite, Hades or Polis. Rather, creation submits to the sovereign rule of the all-powerful God who speaks all things into existence. See, the pagan worldview sought to offer sacrifices in order to appease these gods and thereby hope for a good harvest or hope for a good life. Paul says the true God has already graciously provided those things for them in spite of their idolatrous sacrifices. Paul calls them not to sacrifices to these false gods for a good harvest, but to come to know the true and living God personally, to forsake those vanity of gods and revel in the riches of the true God and His glory. And so what we learn from Paul is that he adapts the gospel presentation to the features of the culture of his audience. And there's a lot that I can say about this, but I'll just make this one point and to say, yes, we do need to correct things that are contrary from God's Word, contrary from the Bible. But at the same time, the gospel, the scope of God's salvation, the scope of God's revelation in the Bible is so large that there are so many entry points, so many different ways that we can lead people to the good news of Jesus. What that means is that we can have many different evangelistic courses. We can have many different gospel presentations. It means that we can have many different evangelistic and apologetic books. And that is a great thing because different aspects of the gospel will appeal to people in different times, in different places, and in different cultures. And so we need to be sensitive to the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel and adapt our gospel presentation to answer the questions that the people in our culture are asking and make the gospel accessible to the circumstances that people are in. And so before COVID, we developed our own evangelistic course. We called it the Explore course. And we tailored that with the mindset of an inner Westie. Because at the core of our mission is to reach people in our local area. But in COVID, we decided to run Alpha Online because the gospel presentation by Alpha is very similar to our Explore course, but they have really high-quality video content, presentations and videos, which in my opinion are the best evangelistic resources to run a course online for an online format. And yes, we'll go back to the Explore course, but in the meantime, we are so thankful to God for Alpha. The take-home and encouragement from all of this is that If you try sharing the gospel with a friend and they're not interested, don't give up. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is no hope for your friend. Just keep trying different gospel presentation. Try a different evangelistic course. Try a different Christian book. Try a different sermon series. Keep adapting. And there might be one particular gospel presentation, talk or video or book that might really appeal and resonate to your friend. And so Paul preaches the gospel faithfully, but also creatively to appeal and challenge to the pagan Gentiles. And then the anguished Jewish leaders catch up with Paul, and they seek to execute Paul in the most humiliating way. They drag him outside of the city to stone him to death. 
and they leave his body for the dogs and the birds to feast on. We do need to just process that for a sec, because the story just took a turn in a very Tarantino-like violence. And if you were like me, and if we were in poor shoes, we would be like, hey, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. But did Paul tap out? No. The next day, Paul, with his bruised and broken body, departs for Derbe with Barnabas. And they do what? They continue to preach the gospel. And they see many people repent. Many people put their faith in Jesus. And then they go back to trace back to the places that they've been. They go back to city and Antioch, even though it's now dangerous for them to be there. We read, then they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Knowing the real risks and dangers to their lives, they go back for the sake of encouraging and strengthening the faith of these new Christians. That is incredible. Paul goes on to then stay and install elders to form churches so that these new Christians will have ongoing local leadership so they will be built up in their faith. And after that, only then is he assured that he would, can leave and make their way back to Antioch, Syria and report back to the congregation that God has indeed opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Man, that's just the first missionary journey. I mean, there is so much that we can learn from just this first journey. But the overall resounding impression is that God is powerful to save many through the gospel. But gospel mission is not romanticized. There is gospel victory, but it comes with real hardship. Paul sums this up at the end of the trip. He says in verse 22 of chapter 14, we must go through many hardship to enter the kingdom of God. Following Jesus, being his witness, comes at a great cost. Most of us will probably not suffer any physical beating for proclaiming the gospel. But you may, however, receive psychological stoning as the culture rejects and ridicules you and demisses your Christian convictions. But this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Because Jesus himself made this very clear when he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will say it, save it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have to remember that you did sign up for this. Jesus didn't hide this information from us. He made it very clear. So it's very important in our evangelism that we also make it very clear to others that following Jesus requires giving up your life for Jesus and for his gospel mission. So the honest question now is, why would you do that? What was it that compelled Paul to risk his life to share the gospel to others? Why would a Christian choose to live this kind of life? Jesus says, whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Why would a Christian choose a life of hardship and sacrifice 
Well, it's because of Jesus and his gospel. It's to experience Jesus and his gospel as more precious, more valuable, more loved, more satisfying than anything in this world can give, including life itself in this world. Christians sign up for this kind of life because Jesus himself is the greatest treasure, the greatest love than all any other thing in this world. Only he offers us freedom and forgiveness of sin. And his gospel offers greater purpose, a greater mission, the salvation of the world to offer others forgiveness and freedom of sin. That is why we sign up for this kind of life. In faith, we choose to live a life of purpose that is greater than anything in this world. We all voluntarily sacrifice and give our lives to something or someone. Wouldn't we want to give our lives to someone that is greater than this world? Wouldn't you want to give your life to something that lasts beyond this world? Friends, that is my appeal and challenge to you today. If you have one life to live, wouldn't you want to live for something greater? Hardship, suffering, sacrifice, look, they're a given in life. No matter what our cultures tries to deny it, hide it, and take us from our views and sight. Hardship, suffering, sacrifices are given in life. But the suffering and sacrifice for Christ is not futile. The labor and toil won't ever be in vain because it is for the Christ who is risen. It is the Christ who is victorious over sin. It is the Christ that offers us forgiveness and freedom in life. And his purpose is to redeem and save the whole entire world that will last for all of eternity. Isn't that a kind of purposeful suffering and sacrifice that is worthwhile than anything that we could ever live for in our lives? I want to be clear. I want to be honest. Following Jesus requires a great cost, but it's infinitely, eternally worthwhile. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you transformed Paul's heart so that he will compelled to share the gospel to the Gentile nations, which has reverberated through the centuries so that the gospel has now been shared to us here in Sydney, Australia. A movement of God that could never be thwarted. We are evidence of your sovereignty and control and power and grace. Father Lord, may we also be compelled by the freedom and forgiveness of sin that we would give up our lives, knowingly, willingly face hardship, suffering and sacrifice to share this good news to others because you are worthwhile, Jesus, and the salvation of this world is worthwhile. Lord, may we be excited. May we feel purposeful to give of all, every aspect of our lives, for, to Jesus and to the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.